0: So we've got an article up on Sot.net by a guy named Bernardo Castrip. He's a computer engineering dude from Eindhoven University of Technology. And he's written a book. He's written several books, but he's got a new one that just came out this week. Uh, it's called The Idea of the World. I haven't read it yet. Uh, I think Corey's been reading it. Mm-hmm. I'm going re- to read it pretty soon. But the article itself is kind of... Uh, deals with a couple ideas that he will get to in this book, and it is specifically on what is called information realism, and why Kastrup says, physics is pointing inexorably to mind. So we're just going to take a look at this article and uh, comment on it, and uh, just see where the discussion takes us, because there's some interesting, some really interesting things in here. Um, I don't know if I agree with it 100%, but uh, I like the direction it's going in. So let's get up that article, and uh, we're going to read through it. So Kastrup starts out um, by writing this. In his 2014 book, Our Mathematical Universe, physicist Max Tegmark boldly claims that protons, atoms, molecules, cells, and stars are all redundant baggage. Only the mathematical apparatus used to describe the behavior of matter is supposedly real, not matter itself. For Mark, the universe is a set of abstract entities with relations between them, which can be described in a baggage-independent way, that is, without matter. He attributes existence solely to descriptions, while incongruously, incongruously denying the very thing that is described in the first place. Matter is done away with, and only information itself is taken to be ultimately real so uh let's stop there for a second and just talk about that. so, what we're talking about here um well what techmark and Castrop are talking about is basically you know it it gets into philosophy basically the the question of what is real what are the what are the units of things or if not units what is the what is reality essentially so there are several historically and today there are several options on the market of course you've got um I guess you can break them down into like materialism. So the only things that are real are the things we classify as matter, and that in a, and within materialism, you've got kind of like old school materialism when when matter was seen as kind of this um, persistent hard stuff, right? These physical solid atoms, out of which matter is, is like you know uh, more large scale things like we experience of, of matter are made. Um, and then, of course, with uh, with the advancements of science in the last hundred, two hundred years, come to the conclusion that though there is no solid matter, it's actually like energy and fields. And um, you know, you get to the quantum level, and you know what's going on there. And so, I guess you could call that like a modern materialism. Everything is like energy, and then in contrast to the materialisms you've got the idealism which is that there is no such thing as matter and all there is is mind and matter i guess is an illusion um in one variety of idealism an illusion like produced by the mind so all you all we have are minds perceiving other minds or mind perceiving itself and the the way in which those minds perceive the the matter of mind is as what the thing we call matter which would go down to you know, what we perceive as and, you know, categorize as uh, as energy. And then, um, but there's this other option on the market now because <clears throat> like uh, I guess it's been in the past, like, maybe, maybe 50, 60 years, I can't remember when the um, when this idea, like, first got proposed, the idea that at the basis of things, it's not just, like, energy. It's actually information. Because any kind of any kind of specific thing going on in, in the world, any kind of movement of a particle or interaction between particles can be looked at in terms of information, it can be described in terms of information. And uh, kind of one of the, mo- the, the simplest ways of describing information in this sense, that, that uh, the, the way I think about it, um, comes from, um, well, uh, Cloud Shannon who developed information theory, but de- developments after him too, uh, information as like the reduction of uncertainty. So you've got, um, the, the way to picture this is, like I've done in previous shows, where you have like a, a set of possibilities, the set of all possibilities, and you can think about this in terms of anything, whether it's the, the possible, like, uh, words and order of words in order to write a paragraph, whether it's the possible, like, locations and states of an atom, whether it's, um, you know, the possible movements of your arm, you know, you, you've got uh, a whole range of possible movements, and then... Um, once you collapse those possibilities into a single a single one, you've uh, you've made a selection. You've reduced that uncertainty into a, um, like a relative certainty, and that uh, that is one way of describing information. Because when you have a word, it is the reduction of uh, of an uncertain string of like uh, you know randomness maybe letters into something that is certain. Um, so you can you can kind of make a comparison between the reduction of uncertainty and the, the reduction of possibilities into actuality and in that way we get like specific forms so like a specific shape is a form of information because it's that one shape as opposed to all other possible shapes and you see that all the way down into to quantum phenomena where you have a um like a a probability function you have the the possible locations of a particle for instance and then through measurement that collapses into one position and but but um but before that you know it was a a, a, posi- a probability you didn't know exactly where it was it was a potential but that uh, that potential reduced into a an actuality and that in it that so you could describe that as information as well it's like okay this is these are the precise um, like numbers and measurements that we can use to characterize this like little mini system that we're looking at and so you can You can apply that to pretty much anything it's like so the movement of that atom it's moving this direction at this speed you know for this amount of time in this uh, across this amount of space it's doing that and it's not doing all the other possibilities so it's a very specific thing and then you have um you have things interacting with each other and they interact in specific ways so um in just to go back to like a topic that we've talked about you know dna and evolution Mm -hmm. um when you look at information in that sense, it's like you've got all this, all this DNA, which is information, it's a code, and it's information because it's specified. It's saying it's like this specific sequence as opposed to all other possible sequence. There's the, the reduction of uncertainty from a, from a field of, of possible sequences to a specific um, sequence that is functional. So an information realist is basically, according to, to Kastrup, um, like Tegmark, like this guy, who's saying that, well, the only real thing is the information. It's the mathematics and, like, the the measurements and the, the things behind the, the, the appearance of, you know, the things that we measure and look at. Only that is real. That the actual, the actual things in themselves that are, I guess you could say maybe, well, he wouldn't say this, but um, embodying though, that information, embodying those principles and those formula and those um, <clears throat> features like I guess you could call them like, uh, you know, charge and spin and whatever physical features there are at that level, <clears throat> that uh, it's the information itself that is the only real thing. And this is kind of a um, a more radical or extreme version of some of the ideas I've, you know, read in the past, where basically they're arguing that, well, information may not be the only thing, but it's fu- it's actually fundamental. So you couldn't have... Um, like atoms with properties and subatomic pop, uh, subatomic particles with properties and specific features without an underlying information basically that the the um, the the it which is the particle or the atom comes from the bit the information the information describes the system and the system um, conforms to that information conforms to those um, possibilities so tegmark is saying no we can, all you need is the mathematical description. And so in saw we've got this uh, this comment on there with a quote from um, Robin Collingwood's book Speculamentis, which we've described on the show before, on this kind of fallacy of abstraction. And so Collingwood wrote, for it must be borne in mind that the abstract concept is nothing but the abstract structure of the sensible world. And therefore, if the concept alone is real... Um, The world whose structure it is will be mere appearance and not reality. And therefore, the world will be a class whose members are not real. Mathematics is nothing but the assertion of the abstract concept, and it can give us no account of the presuppositions of this assertion. Mathematical logic is only the shadow of science itself. It is the truth, but the truth about nothing. It is the description of the structure of a null class. Hence, though the hypotheses of empirical science must have some kind of categorical basis, they cannot find this in mathematics, which is the very distilled essence of hypothesis itself. The abstract cannot rest upon the more abstract, but only upon the concrete. So this is the direction that uh, um, uh, Kastrup seems to be going in this article, because he continues... This abstract notion, called information realism, is philosophical in character, but it has been associated with physics from its very inception. Most famously, information realism is a popular philosophical underpinning for digital physics. The motivation for this association is not hard to fathom. Indeed, according to the Greek atomists, if we kept on dividing things into ever smaller bits, at the end there would remain solid, indivisible particles called atoms, imagined to be so concrete as to have even particular shapes. Yet, as our understanding of physics progressed, we've realized that atoms themselves can be further subdivided, or further divided into smaller bits, and those into yet smaller ones, and so on, until what is left uh, lacks shape and solidity altogether." This is what I said at the beginning. At the bottom of the chain of physical reduction, there are only elusive phantasmal entities we label as energy and fields abstract conceptual tools for describing nature which themselves seem to lack any real concrete essence. <clears throat> so um, we've talked about this in, uh, in previous shows. The, I, I think it was only a couple weeks ago where we talked about this, like the, the, the fallacy of abstraction and the, like the, the pitfalls that, that come about from believing in your own abstractions, believing that your abstractions dr- describe reality. And uh, this is what Whitehead called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, because what and uh, Collingwood uh, said the same thing in *Speculamentis* when he's describing the pitfalls of abstraction. Because what you're basically doing, you're coming up with a general, a general description of a concrete fact, and then taking that general abstract description and saying that that is the actual fact, so that the fact that you're that you were studying in the first place, from which you derived this abstract, this abstraction doesn't really exist. The only thing that exists is your abstraction of it. And then you can use your definition of that abstraction and the features that you kind of um, impart into that abstraction to then uh, provide a complete description of reality. And uh, Collingwood and Whitehead both were like, well, no, it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. Um, and that's what, essentially, that's what matter is. So that's so Whitehead and Castrop would agree here that um, white uh, or white matter is a, an abstraction because we have like a, we abstract from the particulars of our experience, um, the, the the shared features of all the things we consider material, and we come up this, with this abstraction that we call matter, which lacks any interior. Like um, if I were to just study, you know, the people and the objects in this room, I could classify them all as matter, but that wouldn't capture the whole of reality because there are. Um, you know, there are actual beings in this room, including humans and several ladybugs. And to, to reduce them to just the, the properties of matter, which is basically just um, like atoms in motion and interaction with each other, it's something that is missing in that analysis. So um, it, it should just be common sense that you can't take your abstractions to describe reality. That reality is something that your abstractions can kind of grasp uh, a bit of. Can account for a bit of it, but it can't account for the whole of it. Um, <clears throat> and so, well, I'd say even with energy and fields, you know, when we're when we're looking and describing, measuring, and uh, when we're measuring energy and fields, and we're looking at the properties that uh, of the things that we call energy and fields, even that is an abstraction. So let's say we're taking a measurement, and then describing the things we call energy and fields in terms of those me- measurements, in terms of those things that are observable. That doesn't mean that we've, you know, plumbed the depths of energy and uh, and fields. There's potentially and probably more to those phenomena than can be captured in those abstract descriptions, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. In his uh, in his book, the idea of the world, castrup really gets into how this uh, misplaced concreteness has as uh, has gaslighted or gaslit the Western mind, you know, for for centuries. Because as he as he points out, one of the problems is is that we've been told or we all believe that mind and matter are a dichotomy. And in a dichotomy, when you understand one half of the equation, then that tells you what the other half is doing. So if you have the dichotomy of hot and cold, if you measure something and you know it's hot, then you know it's not cold or life and death if you you know are talking to someone and they you know you're having a good time then you know that they're not dead but what the problem is is that mind and matter aren't that they don't have that same relationship so you can't use matter to explain the mind and vice versa because as you said matter is just an abstraction that comes from the mind so that is the crux of the the entire hard problem of consciousness that's why philosophers have been wrestling for it for so long, is trying to explain what created the abstraction through the abstraction. But as he points out, you know, it's actually the concrete reality that we are observing which led to the need to create this hypothesis about what the world is. And so we needed to understand why we all share the same world, why we have these correlations with you know, our internal experience and the physical world, and I can't remember the third one, but let's just say those those two are pretty those two are pretty big things that are explained mm-hmm. by the physical by the matter hypothesis however they aren't the that uh physicality is still just a hypothesis it's not it's an abstract um way of comprehending the world and why it acts the way it does outside of our you know internal our internal mind. Oh, the third one was, you know, why we can't just interfere in the processes of nature with our own volition, you know, mm. with our just the mind. So it it remains a hypothesis to explain those three basic facts of human existence in this world that we live in. And it's done remarkably well to explain it for a long time. However, as we've pointed out in last week's show, and we and we continue to point out, it doesn't. It can't be used to explain the nature of the mind because the mind is what created it. The mind needed it to explain something, and if it worked for a certain number of problems, that doesn't mean that it's going to work for every problem. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's true. It means that it was. It's useful. And one of the problems I think, like you said, Harrison, is that. You uh, that people become um, they they fall in love with this abstraction. You know, they, they, it's like they fall in love with uh, with the sense of you know power, kind of the sense of you know c- completion that it mm-hmm. that it provides that, that you know exactly what is out there comfort. and that you, they have the yeah. comfort and the fact that you can manipulate it. You know, you I I can say with an ulti- with absolute certainty what the universe is. But you know, as he points out in his book. It's uh, this is misplaced uh, certainty. It's narcissism, you know. When you worship, you know, it's kind of like worshiping at, you know, the uh, a false idol. Um, you know, you uh, you forget you you forget what the uh, you, you deny the divinity of humanity, and you worship at the the feet of this false idol that is uh, materialism. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as you pointed out, it is just it's fundamentally based on the, on the on a bad way of seeing the world that mind and matter aren't a dichotomy. They're not like hot and cold or life and death or, you know, th- thick and thin. You know, you can't measure one and know what the other one is. They are, the, it's, it's a completely different relationship. There are dichotomies within mind. There are dichotomies within this physical world. And there's dichotomies within the properties of the physical world. Um, but you can't use the mind, whatever, or to explain, or you can't use matter to explain the mind.
2: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well, I'd just like us to kind of get back to the very beginning of the essay because um, to underscore uh, what it is that's being said here. uh, So his criticism, it would seem to be, in looking at uh, Max Tegmark's book, Our Mathematical Universe, he's basically saying, as far as I understand, that Tegmark is using um, mathematics as his... As his way of coming at this, mm-hmm. uh, this whole dichotomy, and and mistaking uh, whatever comprehension he has, whatever uh, whatever understanding there is of the universe and and forms and things that exist through mathematics, as as a kind of whole enchilada. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so that's his point of departure here, and uh, it's really a it, it's really kind of a fine point because. Um, You know, we're we're not used to thinking of the way in which information uh, is being used to describe reality uh, versus matter, and um, and he's coming at this in a in a way that um, I think makes distinctions that we're not even used to making and thinking about. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, because um, I mean, because take Mark does have a point, Um, and and I'd even agree with him over. Um, over the people that deny mathematics, we had, we discussed this last year sometime when we were talking about uh, mathematical realism, how there are people who, um, like philosophers <clears throat> and even mathematicians themselves, who deny like the the reality of um, of numbers, for instance, and mathematics in general. But that doesn't seem to work. It seems to be that mathematics are are a real thing. We but they're this but but they're this non physical like abstract thing. Mm-hmm and the the world does seem um, to be intricately like intimately tied to mathematics like th- things seem to behave in mathematical ways so that you can get a um, you can describe reality in terms of mathematics and it w- and reality behaves according to the um like the not necessarily the laws but the 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 dynamics or the 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 principles or just you know the equations of mathematics it, there seems to be this like intimate marriage between the two so when you when you, when you actually realize that then then for sure you like the first thing to say is yes mathematics is real and but Tegmark uh, according to Kastrup, goes a bit too far by saying that mathematics is the only real thing as opposed to just saying that somehow it is tied with this thing that we experience as the physical world, as the, as the world in which we find ourselves. So, um, so yeah, there's the fine distinction. Like the, on the one hand, he's right. Like mathematics and, and information are, are real and are important, but you have to, you then have to ask and answer the question of, well, how are they real in relation to what are they real? Like, are they, the, are they the ultimate, um, bits of reality? Or um, are they themselves part of a, a more fundamental something that makes up reality? So this is the direction that Kastrup is going to go into. He's going to be arguing that uh, that the the most ultimate thing that and the most ultimate and the most fundamental thing is mind itself. So mind itself uh, can't be reduced to either matter or mathematics. Um, but maybe mathematics and information can be understood in terms of the mind. At least that's where I think he's going. Mm-hmm. We'll find out. So uh, continuing on, so he just, just, he just gave this description of like uh, materialism and uh, you know, the, the labels of <clears throat> energy and fields that we give to these phantasmal entities. So then he writes, to some physicists, this indicates that what we call matter with its solidity and concreteness is an illusion, that only the mathematical apparatus they devise in their theories is truly real, not the perceived world the apparatus was created to describe in the first place. From their point of view, such a counterintuitive conclusion is an implication of theory, not a conspicuously narcissistic and self-defeating proposition. So what he's basically saying there is that, um, you know, that what these people are saying is, that, oh, we've got a theory and this is just the, the counterintuitive conclusion that comes from our theory and because we believe our theory is true, this must be true. Like the world must be an illusion because of the theory, um, and it's not just a self-defeating proposition because we've got this theory that accounts for everything, and because you know, theory seems to be correct. But um, you know, that's kind of kind of ridiculous. And Castro might be might be framing it in a in a in a way in which to make his point here, but but he does have a point um, because. It doesn't matter where it comes from, if it's your theory or not. If your position is self-defeating, then if it's self-contradictory, then it's not worth having. Like that means that means there's something wrong with your theory. It means there's something wrong with the way you're thinking about it. You're missing something. So if you if you're coming to a conclusion that uh, that denies the the this very basic common sense, then you know your theory needs revising and maybe th- being thrown out. This is the this for the same reason that uh, postmodernism. And its um, you know truth-denying varieties should be um, abandoned because you can't argue for the truth of a theory that denies truth because you're implicitly you know presupposing the existence of a truth and that your your own theory is true. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, so the theory itself should, should just be thrown out. It means there's something going wrong in your theory at at some point, either either in the course of like the the argumentation or in your very basic. Um, like axioms or principles or presuppositions, something's wrong. Like, one of the premises in your argument is is just wrong because it's leading you to an absurdity. So uh, he goes on. Indeed, according to information realists, matter arises from information processing, not the other way around. Even mind, psyche, soul, is supposedly a uh, a derivative phenomenon of purely abstract information manipulation. But in such a case, what exactly is meant by the word information, since there is no physical or mental substrate to ground it? So this is an interesting point. You know, he doesn't really expand on this, but its uh, I think he probably does in his book, I'm guessing. because So if we're calling something information, um, first of all, what do we mean by that? He'll get to that in a little bit. Um, But then he has this interesting statement. Since there is no physical or mental substrate to ground it, to ground it. Um, everything that we think of, of, think of as information has a substrate when you think about it. Um, books have like the, the ink and paper on which they're printed. Um, radio waves carrying information from like a, a radio source that has been encoded has, um, like those waves are encoding that information. And um, you know DNA has the the actual you know the double helix where the information is coded in a physical way. But then when you the, like the other types of information that we generally think about, because you know when when we are when we are putting something when we when we are putting information into a physical substrate, what we're doing is we're basically transferring it from our mind from our imagine, from our imagination into the physical world in some way. We do this through speech. That's the most basic way. One of the most basic ways. Um, but we have all of these kind of, um, external ways to, to also do that. So instead of speaking, we can write it down and we can transmit it through a a physical, um, well, through another physical means we can do it physically through our vocal cords and the sounds that we make, or we can, you know, put it into a book and, you know, it'll last for a lot longer than our speech, or we can record our speech and that will then live on for longer than the speech itself has lasted. Because you you'd think about, like, before there were any kind of recording devices, before there was even the written language, all we had were, um, you know, speaking to each other. And the only way to record that would be through memory. And so, you know, there are some, uh, you know, historical hints that people, um, at least some cultures had very advanced, like, memory techniques. So, of course, you know, they could remember um, something like, you know, something as long as the Iliad or or potentially more you know just through memorization we could transmit this but uh but now that we have like you know multiple terabyte hard drives we can store vastly more amount of information um more easily and we produce like way more information but the main point is just that um that there has to be there seems to have to be some kind of substrate in which information to in in which information exists and the other one he gives so he says there's no physical or mental substrate because the ultimate substrate for information is a mind is that like so when you when you are thinking of uh, of what to say when you have an when you're having an internal internal dialogue when you're looking at internal like visual imagery mental imagery um when you're composing a, a song in your head when you're hearing music in your head that is all information it's all meaningful but um, it arguably isn't in a physical substrate. Now, you could argue that uh, because you are using your brain, that that information is somehow in your brain. Well, that may, that may be the case in some sense if there is like a one-to-one correlation between every thought you have and every you know brain state. But um, I think, Teg, uh, not Tegmark, but Kastrup and you know several of his colleagues and several of the people we talk about will argue that no, um, you, the, the mind does not need a brain in order to um to like process information or to think you know that um that the the mind is fundament the mind is a more fundamental part of that equation where basically the mind thinks the mind has information in it and then that information may then get encoded in like um a pattern of brain activity or um the the body you know all the various aspects of your body um your organs your you know all all your nerves and all the the different kind of chemical pathways for transferring information for communication within your body all of that presents information to the brain so there we've got another physically instantiated you know um, method of or physically instantiated information within the body that presents itself to the brain the brain does stuff with it that then gets presented to the mind to your consciousness to your perception in some way a lot of it doesn't but some of it does like pain very easily you know we all understand pain we all understand the meaning of pain and that is a you know a transfer of of meaningful information from the source of the pain to your own consciousness so you have the experience of of pain um so when you if you're going to argue that information is the only thing that exists well you kind of have to answer the question well where is that information like how do we how do we think about about information like is is everything is information within itself or like the, the only thing that that intuitively makes sense, um, you know, based on our experience, unless we're just going to speculate about things that we have no experience of, in which case we can come up with anything, then we need to basically look at the, at the, the examples of our experience at what it means, you know, because experience basically provides us with the only things that we can work with. We can't, we can't, um, we can't know anything that is outside of our experience, just by definition. So where do we find information? We find it in physical and mental substrates. So do you want me to go on, or do you guys have anything to say about that?
1: Well, no, I was just, yeah, I just wanted to add that, and uh, the only way that you can, the only way that information becomes information is when you observe with the mind. right? Bef- uh, without that, then you don't have the observer. Uh, you don't have any real, like that wave collapsing event that they talk about in quantum quantum theory, which creates that information, uh, I guess, gateway, pathway, or whatever that c- collapses the system so that you get an observation, you get a measurement. Um, and I think uh, Kastrup writes in the book about one of the, the driving forces behind this attempt to find a third way of explaining matter and the mind and it's and it, it goes back to that that prejudice against the mind and the you know that hard problem that impossibility of finding uh, a way of explaining you know the the impossible task of explaining the mind through its the abstraction just one abstraction that it came up with and so if you know the if you're trying to find the ultimate source of you know of reality, and you've done away with mind and matter because you can't explain the two in, in our current way of thinking, and then you find information, um, you uh, you know it's attractive and it's alluring, and it also, in many ways, is like you said, it's a fundamental part of the universe, and it's really it was it's a huge breakthrough mm-hmm. to understand the the nature of information, but you can't understand it without the mind, and you know as we said. Uh, it would make more sense to put the mind first that the mind and or the experience of the information is the ultimate uh, is is, one, is the ultimate. And that's what Kastrup argues is that if you're if you're trying to find this ultimate artifact, this ultimate primitive as I think the that's called in physics, that you're best using the mind because that's all that we have. you know that's how we experience. That's all we know for sure that's everything else out there is hypothesis is a theory but we know we, we, Well, i hope that we know that we have a mind and that that we are experiencing when i feel pain i know i feel pain nobody has to prove it to me if i feel you know sweetness or if i taste sweet or sour um any kind of experience that i have i you know it, it, that is the core um that he he would he argues that that is the ultimate in the universe mm-hmm.
0: Well, just to go off on that a bit um, like I think there's a there's a truth in there, but even that can be um, taken a bit too far and that's that's what Whitehead called like I believe the sub subjectionist or the subjective uh, subjective subjectivist principle I believe is what he called it when he was analyzing Descartes and Locke and Hume um, that that all we know is that we have a mind and that we have experiences. But Whitehead would argue that that's not all we know. Um, it is the fundamental thing that we know, but tied, like intimately tied with that knowledge is the knowledge that there are other things that we know. So, when we have an experience of something, it isn't just a, uh, like a, a, a sensory experience that is totally divorced from some other thing, and we can't tell if we're uh, in an illusion and dreaming it, or if there's some other thing. Uh, Whitehead would argue that on a very basic level, we have a direct knowledge, um, a direct experience of that other thing, and that's why we have the experience of it. So we can only know something through, through our own subjectivity, through our own experience, but um, embedded within that, um, that experience and that knowledge of the self is this implicit knowledge of the other, of the, of the other things around us that we are experiencing, so those two are kind of are tied together. The question then is, what is the nature of, what are the natures of those things? What is the nature of like myself as an experiencing subject, and of the things that I experience as objects that present themselves to to my um, experience? So that's a that's a question that that Castrop uh, deals with too. Um, not so much in this article, but uh, again, I'm guessing more so in his book, which we'll get to. So. Um, he goes on, the last point we just made is that um, so the whole idea of what is this information if there's no physical or mental substrate and really, um, what is this information if um, information itself is, as far as we know, derivative of minds, right? That it, it, Information is an expression of intelligence. Um, intelligences or like um, organisms are what create meaning. They have meaning in themselves and they create the meaning in the in the information in their behaviors and in like a a higher form of life, like in humanity through their thoughts. So um, Castro goes on writing, you see, it is one thing to state in language that information is primary and can therefore exist independently of mind and matter. But it is another thing entirely to explicitly and coherently conceive of what, if anything, this may mean by way of analogy. It is possible to write, as Lewis Carroll did, that the Cheshire cat's grin remains after the cat disappears. But it is another thing entirely to conceive explicitly and coherently of what this means. Our intuitive understanding of this concept of information, as cogently captured by Cloud Shannon in 1948, is that it is merely a measure of the number of possible states of an independently existing system. As such, information is a property of an underlying substrate associated with the substrate's possible configurations, not an entity unto itself. <clears throat> so I mentioned Cloud Shannon earlier, um, maybe to just give a little background on what he's talking about here. So for Cloud Shannon, um, uh, information was, wasn't the meaning of anything. It was simply like the information-bearing capacity of your substrate. So if you had, um, like in binary, if you had, uh, I hope I'm going to get this right. So you have zeros and ones in binary. You have two options, right? So if you, had, if you have five characters, that's five bits, right? Um, five zeros or ones. Uh, I'm guessing there because I'm really not a, an information technologist. Um, so, you've, so you've got possible states there. You've got two possible states in the first position, two in the second, et cetera so you've got a total possible a total number of possibilities so the information carrying capacity of that string of uh of uh numbers is going to be a certain number and um and like the longer the string is and the more possibilities the more information carrying capacity it's going to have so you could say that uh, like in this string of whatever the substrate is um you can have um like like there's a like, there's a million possibilities or something. So the chances of having, like, this one sequence is one in a million. And, like, you can describe that capacity in terms of bits, uh, but it doesn't say anything about what the actual information is. So you could describe DNA in terms of, like, information-carrying capacity, but it doesn't describe um, at all what the DNA actually does or what it actually is. It's just, like, the, the possible states of this sequence of DNA, And the, like, when you, because when you get to actual meaningful information, like a code, um, and this might be like a cipher, you know, a password or something, that password then becomes meaningful, because it has a function, it has a a meaning to it. And, um, and it is a very, like, it is, it is an improbable sequence of Um, it's, it's one possible sequence out of this vast number of possible sequences. That's why, you know, you want to pick good passwords because you don't want them to be able to, to be guessed. You have like the longer, the better. And the more like random seeming numbers you have, because the, the harder it is to guess because you're, you're collapsing again, you're collapsing the uncertainty. Like if, if there were a password, um, like imagine a password setup where every character, um, it's like, uh, every character could be any other character. So no matter what you type all the passwords work right that uh, that would not be a good password because any you know you would just type in any any sequence of those letters and you would get into the system what you what you need is the the really like the, the reduction of that um, of, of those possibilities into one specific sequence and that's what a password is um, so cloud Shannon basically he had an him, he himself had an abstraction of information as this, um, the 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 a measure of the number of possible states. So um, and that's pretty much it. He didn't get into the meaning. So that's why Castrop uh, goes on to say that to say that information exists in and of itself is a is akin to speaking of spin without the top, of ripples without water, of a dance without the dancer, or, or of the Cheshire cat's grin without the cat. It is a grammatically valid statement devoid of sense, a word game less meaningful than fantasy, for internally consistent fantasy can at least be explicitly and coherently conceived as such. One assumes that serious proponents of information realism are well aware of this line of criticism. How do they reconcile their position with it? A passage by Luciano Floridi may provide a clue. In a section titled The Nature of Information, he states, Information is notoriously a polymorphic phenomenon and a polysemantic concept. So, as an explicandum, it can be associated with several explanations, depending on the level of abstraction adopted, uh, depending on the level of of abstraction adopted, and the cluster of requirements and desiderata orienting a theory. Information remains an elusive concept. So it's basically a long and uh, wordy way of saying that last bit. Information remains an elusive concept. Estrop Such obscure ambiguity lends information realism a conceptual fluidity that makes it unfalsifiable. After all, if the choice of uh, if the choice of primitive is given, is right? If the choice of primitive is given by an elusive concept, how can one definitely establish that it is wrong? In admitting the possibility that information may be a network of logically interdependent but mutually irreducible concepts, Floridi seems to suggest even that such elusiveness is inherent and unresolvable. Whereas vagueness may be defensible in regard to natural entities conceivably beyond the human ability to to apprehend, it is difficult to justify when it comes to a human concept, such as information. We invented the concept, so we either specify clearly what we mean by it, Um, or our conceptualization remains too vague to be meaningful. In the latter case, there is literally no sense in attributing primary existence to information. The untenability of information realism, however, does not erase the problem that motivated it to begin with. The information that at bottom what we call matter becomes pure abstraction, a phantasm. How can the felt concreteness and solidity of the perceived world evaporate out of existence when we look closely at matter. To make sense of this, con- uh, this conundrum, we don't need word games of information realism. Instead, we must stick to what is most immediately present to us. Solidity and concreteness are qualities of our experience. The world measured, modeled, and ultimately predicted by physics is the world of perceptions, a category of mentation. The phantasms and abstractions reside merely in our descriptions of the behavior of that world, not in the world itself. Anyone want to comment on that bit?
1: Well, like you said, Harrison, I mean, you can go a little bit too far and say that everything is is subjective, but um, I think that that he's really on to something and that he's really trying to kick... Uh, the the status quo in the behind and he's trying to advance a a way of viewing the world that places uh, that puts everything back into perspective so that you have um, you know that theories don't become the uh, the, you know, the gods and the idols that everyone worships, that rather the theories are seen as, as what they are as theories. And yet we still retain an, an open mind to, to mind itself mm-hmm. and that we, we put things back into, to back to where they belong. Like we were, you know, saying that, um, the, the driving force behind all of these attempts to come up with, um, Ways of of structuring the universe, you know. That's that's the that's the big thing is is trying to structure the universe. What is at the foundation? What is the universe really? Is it is it just matter, or you know, is it just uh, information? Is it is it this um, you know panpsychism? Is it is does everything experience? You know, all these these are very big questions. You know, how can you understand where the mind came from? Um, if it just came out of nothing if it came out of nowhere you know when the with when there was the first uh living being that was capable of you know some form of consciousness that we have did it just it just came out of nowhere i mean the serious questions that you know people would you know say that they belong in like a philosophy 101 class you know i think that's what the logical positive, uh, positivists and the more analytical branch of philosophy would say however the human machine our machine isn't wired to see reality in just that manner we do have um, you know as Jordan Peterson would say we're we're structured we you know we have a left hemisphere that will view things the way we know them a right hemisphere that is more towards the unknown and that we are we do have a capacity to be both analytical and to still embrace a more broad and fluid more being centered way of viewing the world of, of, of seeing it um in like a in a phenomenological way like like Collingwood would say, being able to get inside the events, and so we have the capacity to do that and it's it's a it's important i think to um to to utilize both of those capabilities, both of those ways of viewing the world because otherwise we have a one sided development we we end up like the auto- like just automated automatons that we that we worship. Um, and I, I think that's what he, he's really trying to do. I haven't read his other books, but in the idea of the world, he says that he, he tackles this problem with that more analytic, uh, way of seeing things that the logical just you know logic is just the handmaiden of science it's not there are no there's no such thing as there's no meaning to the question what is the meaning of life there's no meaning to questions like where did consciousness come from or what is a mind you know he he tried to write that book and he wrote this article uh, in that in that vein where you are you're just you're very much focused on the nuts and bolts and the logical arguments and getting to the the depth of it. But he's also written other works where he says he's more of a continental-type philosopher, you know, more like the Kant or the, you know, the... Um, Heidegger and the people who are, you know, just really, you know, the kind of romantic Mm. and experientialist types of philosophers. And he's written books like that, too. So he he uh, has utilized both approaches to try and hammer home, I think, the point that there's a lot more to what's going on than just a, you know, this theoretical bleached way of viewing the world. And that's and it's it's almost impossible, I think, to live our lives denying that. By by wholeheartedly denying that we create a contradiction within ourselves, where we deny our own experience, mm-hmm. and we look. I mean, I imagine from like a cosmic mind perspective, if you look down, you'd be like, "What they? What are they trying to do there? They don't. They're say they don't have. They don't exist. What are they wishing for? For existence Or you know what? It's um. It's. I think it's it's a definitely a big conversation, and I, he's he handles it extremely well he he has the arguments he really tries to bolster them with scientific evidence in his book he does he does draw on scientific evidence to show that physicalism um or, you know materialism can't be right that it's it's just it's scientifically testable that it is false it's not the it's not how the universe works
2: well th- this this whole discussion reminds me greatly of the arguments that are being um, put to Michael Behe's uh, discussion of intelligent design and uh, and evolution, where the, the scientists who are, uh, and these are heavy hitters, who are most vocal in their criticism of Behe's discoveries, uh, what they seem to do is come up with their their own theories as to how things have evolved in their minds, um, and but that have absolutely little to no kind of uh, provable um, uh, demonstrations. It's all it's all something that they've just sort of imagined to be real, and then they proceed from from those imaginary uh, developments and ideas of, of evolution to use those, to, to assume that they are absolutely true and to use as a point of departure from which to, uh, to try and knock down Behe's, uh, assertions, uh, which aren't even assertions. They're just, they're just observations that are based on his experience of, of observable data and, and objective fact. Um, and uh And are completely well reasoned out, so it seems to me that the that you know the these scientists who are most vocal uh, in criticizing be here are kind of the, the living examples right now of of this um, of this false dichotomy who are embodying the uh materialist uh way of thinking, even as they try and explain um the, the most cogent coherent uh, fact-based uh, arguments for intelligent design uh, you know it, it just seems it, it just screams for um, knocking down and that's exactly what we've what we've been reading uh, in articles on sot We've been seeing he knock down these arguments one after the next after the next So uh, that that seems to be one of the 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 most um egregious uh or at least obvious examples to me of of you know how many scientists take their own uh, abstractions and imaginings for truth mm-hmm. and and are unwilling to um experience uh for lack of a better word the 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 facts and the discoveries and the um the the kind of coherent reasoning and logic behind um, intelligent design that we've been looking at in these past many shows and discussions.
0: Well, um, we're getting to the end of the show today, so let's just, uh, I'm going to read and finish this article. It's just a few paragraphs more, and then we'll give our final thoughts on it. So Kastrup goes on. Where we get lost and confused is in imagining that we are describe, that what we are describing is a non-mental reality underlying our perceptions, as opposed to the perceptions themselves. We then try to find the solidity and concreteness of the perceived world in that postulated underlying reality. However, a non-mental world is inevitably abstract. And since solidity and concreteness are felt qualities of experience, what else? We cannot find them there. The problem we face is thus merely an artifact of thought, something we conjure up out of thin air because of our theoretical habits and prejudices. Tegmark is correct in considering matter, uh, defined as something outside and independent of mind, to be unnecessary baggage. But the implication of this fine and indeed brave conclusion is that the universe is a mental construct displayed on the screen of perception." Tegmark's mathematical universe is inherently a mental one. For where does mathematics, numbers, sets, equations, exist, if not in mentation? As I elaborate extensively in my new book, The Idea of the World, none of this implies solipsism. The mental universe exists in mind, but not in your personal mind alone. Instead, it is a transpersonal field of mentation that presents itself to us as physicality, with its concreteness, solidity, and definiteness once our personal mental processes interact with it through observation. This mental universe is what physics is leading us to, not the hand-waving word games of information realism. So he ends it there. And so he's so he is basically coming out as uh, an idealist in the end, saying that everything is mind. Um, and, you know, I've had my, my problems with pure idealism in the past, but I think it may be the case that when you take any of these positions like to their extremes they kind of end up meeting again at the you know at the at the extremes like uh like in a circle you know they, they end up meeting um and the reason i say that is because like if you take um physicalism like materialism and you you do argue that matter is everything then if you if you come to the conclusion that matter is everything but that matter is conscious then you end up uh, you end up with a position that argues that consciousness is somehow fundamental to the to reality too and if you are if you argue that um, mentality is everything but that the way in which um, mind experiences itself is as what we perceive as like physical then you you still have something that we you know that we call matter that we call physicality but that ultimately comes from mind it's like the it's it's hard to see where the where the distinctions are to be made, and you know where one kind of goes to the other. This, I think this is why I, I prefer um, Whitehead so far, in that he basically argues that um, like the, the the fundamental bits of of the the universe aren't physical, um, but they're not just mental either. They are what he calls like actual occasions. There are things that are experienced as actual, as like whatever we experience as physical, but also what we experience as Um, as mental so every every part of the universe from the smallest like subatomic particle and like and wave and and field um to the the most complex is both a subject and an object you know it is a subject that experiences itself and other um um, other beings other organisms as objects um and and but it is it is also a subject just like all the other like organisms or beings in the in the universe, which with it interacts. They're just, it's kind of like, it's two sides of a, of a coin almost, where you look at it from one perspective and it's physical, and you look at it from another perspective and it's uh, mental. So maybe they're essentially, you know, saying the same thing with different emphases, because um, at least that's the way that, uh, that it appears to me just based on this short article. But uh, I guess we'll find out. Do you know the answers, Corey? Do you know all the answers? I, I
1: know all of them. I'm not going to share them. <laughs> it blow your mind. You're
0: going to keep them to yourself.
1: No, I was I was thinking that um that there has to be some sort of uh like it seems like they're like when these kinds of debates occur they do tend to happen on the same level on this kind of theoretical this kind of theoretical level but with all of the... uh you know we've discussed intelligent design and Elon has brought it up um you know that's that scientific those scientific discoveries kind of beg the question. They kind of call out for a philosophy that mm-hmm. could account for the kinds of intelligence. Yeah. Um, and Kastrup doesn't really go into that in his book, the the world of I or the idea of the world. He basically just sets out kind of a, a theoretical framework for how we, there could be other consciousness in the universe, um, how the entire universe could be conscious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, to 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 come up to with um, to come face to face with the kinds of intelligence that science shows us is, I think that it sends a lot of people packing. I think it's just so intense to see the kinds, mm. like I mean, it's and it's threatening too because it's like um, you know, if somebody's watching you, it's your You know, driving down the street, you know, or or walking down the street, you feel like somebody's eyes on your back and you don't know who's you, but you just feel like someone's watching you. It's something similar to that. It's just something that, you know, that, like, I think that intelligent design, you know, I think it'll probably just be a natural outcome that if that, you know, continues to gain momentum, that there will be uh, philosophers that will, you know, that will answer the call of what kinds of intelligence there is in the universe. And you're going to, I think you're going to need a theory like this to explain how there could be intelligence like this and, you know, not in just a, Oh, that you have know, a bunch of aliens, you know, the Alex Jones theory that the aliens came and they, <laughs> they just threw every, you know, threw some magic dust or whatever, some space dust down and then it turned into microbes. Um, you, yeah, I think that you're going to want to have some kind of a theory that explains that, um, and, you know, it's, it's not going to just be the, the typical kind of pan you know, everything is conscious versus, you know, everything is matter. Type debate, um, but that it's nice. It'll be it'll be good to restore balance to that debate. To put a little bit more weight on the consciousness side. To get more people thinking, and you know, probing the idea of what kinds of intelligence is out there. If you know, everything is information. I mean, are there multiple levels of intelligence? When you mm-hmm. look at the fine tuning of the universe, that is so that it can support life. Whereas, you know, as, you know, physicists say that, you know, I think it was in the book The Rare Earth, they argue that, you know, it's, it's, the universe is fine-tuned, the planet was fine-tuned, everything, so that you could have life. Um, You, uh, you know, is there an intelligence that is at that level? And then there's Mm -hmm. nested hierarchies of intelligence all the way, all the way down to us and down and down and down, um, you know, until you get to the, you know, bacteria. And I mean, is there, I mean, is it just, does it you know like we talked in the consciousness of earth yeah consciousness anatomy of the soul about how there seems to be these big jumps mm-hmm. on earth every 200 million years i mean how you know how high does it go yeah i think
0: that's that's one of the
1: the gaps that i
0: see in the the kind of current debate where um for the people like for the pro intelligent design people who seem to be um the the only people kind of considering this um in relation to science, or, you know, there are others, but, you know, they're the, they're the most vocal, I think, um, how they, they will recognize, along with all kinds of other philosophers and people not even related to ID, that um, there is a range of intelligences um, from, like, uh, from humans and below, or, you know, from like bacteria to, to humans. And then you'll get like pan panexperientialists, and like the variety of people like that, like Whitehead and, and David Ray Griffin, who will argue that the that that consciousness goes down to subatomic particles to some degree. That there is some like iota of experience in even the even the most simplest um, you know thing in the in the universe. But then, where all of them seem to stop is that they, they've got okay, so from atoms and stuff up to humans, and then God. So there's a super a super intelligence, a vast intelligence like that is the the most like unfathomably intelligent and like and whatever else we can ascribe to it. And then there's humans and everything below. Well, is could there be like intelligences like between mm-hmm. like humans and that ultimate level? I mean, it's at, it at least seems plausible if there are all these other intelligences, if there's so like so many vast degrees of intelligence from like uh from protons up to humans you'd think that maybe it would at least be possible that there might be like uh individualized intelligences like between the level the level of us and the ultimate and so what might the role be of like intelligence of that sort like that would be a question you know to ask and to to hopefully answer or speculate about but uh but no one's really doing that at least to to my knowledge, the only place you've had that is in like, uh, you know, the religious traditions of, of uh, you know, of theology and, you know, speculation and and mystical experience of of higher intelligence like angels, you know, or demons or whatever like that. So,
2: And, and framed in the way you did, Harrison, it's completely reasonable mm-hmm. to think that as above, so below that uh, that there is some omnipotent if there is some kind of higher level. Being uh, such as a god or a cosmic mind or something, that there would be these different levels of of intelligence between human beings and that and that higher Mm -hmm. uh, being and intelligence, whatever it is. Um, But I I think it comes down very much to human arrogance and uh, and the idea that uh, because science hasn't yet uh, you know theorized or come up with with ideas that that are satisfying enough to a, a lot of the neo-Darwinists that it can't it, it therefore can't be so.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have, I don't think it's there's probably I think there's some arrogance, but I don't think it's entirely like unjustified because um, like we can we can see bacteria like now um, in our everyday experience we don't have we don't have the obvious experience of like super intelligences that we have of you know, like stink bugs and, you know, ladybugs and microbes and, um, you know, all these other, like intelligences that are within, you know, our everyday experience. And that's why a lot of people even reject the idea of God or a cosmic mind, because they can't see how that applies to their, to their everyday life. Some get there philosophically and say, oh, there must be this, this overarching, like intelligence, um, that could exist even though I have, you know, no direct experience of it to my knowledge. But uh, so, it, on the one hand, I think that it is it is at least justified in, the, in that um, you know it's hard to believe in things that you don't see. But that's another that's a topic for another show. We're gonna um, end it there for today. So we'll we'll be coming back and uh, talking about this more in the coming weeks. So thanks for tuning in. See you guys. Bye 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 everyone.